Welcome to another episode of the Victory Baptist Church podcast. This podcast is a ministry of Victory Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. To learn more about our ministry and the impact it has had in our community for over 50 years, visit VictoryBaptistValdosta.com. Now let's listen as Pastor Ward brings today's message from God's Word. tonight. I've really been praying about the summer uh, services. A few years ago, I did a series during the summer, I think it was on Sunday night, and uh, took the 12 or 13 church epistles, took care of one of them each week, and uh, went through those. We called it summer school. Now, people don't like to hear that. Some of you remember summer school uh, from when you were in school, but uh, it's uh, just some teaching and preaching on the church epistles. Uh, this year it's on my heart about the book of Revelation. I started a message there a few weeks ago, and the Lord just kind of dealt my heart about Sunday nights, just looking into the book of Revelation. I've made two attempts, in four, three attempts in 45 years to preach verse by verse through the book of Revelation, and I don't think I ever made it past number 12 or 13. There's uh, After you leave... Uh, chapter number 5, chapter number 6 through chapter number 19 are all about the tribulation period. And you come in every Sunday night and look at the tribulation period, and it's just kind of depressing. We're not going to be here when it really happens, but I think it's important that we know it'll help us to be more conscious about warning men, women, boys, and girls about what is to come in the book of Revelation. And so, Lord willing, if you'll pray for me, I'm going I'm to look at some topics God gave me 10 of them not too long ago, just, uh, uh, just a few weeks ago, and uh, we'll be looking at these topics. We won't have this on the screen for you right this moment, but we look at, we're looking at the things that John saw. Now, in, in uh, the first chapter of the book of Revelation, I believe it's chap- verse number 19, we have a natural outline for the book of Revelation. You don't have to go to anybody's book to get one. It's divided into three parts. It's divided into the first part being the things which are and the things things that thou hast seen, the things which are and the things that shall quickly or shortly come to pass. And so the book of Revelation divided up into those three categories, the things that John has seen. I don't know how many times this this, uh, phrase of, I think I, I mentioned some 42 times or so that it talks about that uh, the things that John saw. But it's not just the things that John saw, it's also the things that he heard. You'll see that as you go through the book of Revelation, the two things, the things that he saw with his eyes, the things that he heard with his ears. And I heard this, and I saw this. And so God takes all of the things that John saw in his vision there as he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos, being persecuted for his religious faith, and God opened up the heavens and began to show him things and gave him a panoramic view of the things that, uh, to see Jesus. And that's all in the first chapter. You can see that. And he saw him. And we talked a little bit about that a few weeks ago. We're going to go back and uh, cover that. And so you go to, in chapter 1 and 2 and 3, you cover those two things. Those things are covered for the most part, the things that I have seen and the things which are. And then he begins in chapter number one, in verse number, uh, chapter number four, in verse number one, 
and he starts the final part of it. Everything, the first, the first two-thirds of the outline are made up of chapter number one, two, and three. And then chapter number four begins the third part, the final third of the outline, and goes all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, the things that are coming, the things that are coming. And so those divisions have to be understood. There's a lot of things that we have to understand when we come to a study of the book of Revelation. I think that it is very, it should behoove us, and I think that it's, it is a, it's a mandate, it's paramount, that we take the verbiage as it is in the book of Revelation. Just as God said it. You don't have to worry about as to whether or not it is figurative, uh, you don't have to worry about as to whether or not it's typology. If he says something is a certain way, and if, it's not ex if, if, if that is figurative language, and there is some figurative language in the book of Revelation, he'll say something like this, as it were, as it were. And so we don't have to worry about any of those things. The things that we are studying tonight, we'll just look at them at face value, and I can't explain all of these things. When we get to the tribulation period, uh, there's no way that I can even comprehend in my human mind of what's going on. I know what God's doing. I know that, it's, that he's putting Israel in the melting pot according to the book of Daniel. We know that the tribulation period for the most part has to do with God driving his, the nation that has forsaken him uh, back into himself, compelling them to come home again. And, uh, and there's a Gentile portion, and there's a world portion of the, uh, of the tribulation period beginning in uh, chapter number 6. And so we'll look at some of these things. We'll be able to put some, uh, perhaps some graphs on the screen and so on and so forth and, and uh, take our time with it. I'm not going to get in a hurry. But here's some of the things, and again, we don't have these um, in the first place. Uh, that uh, the first thing is that John saw Jesus Christ. The second thing, we've already looked at these, John saw the church age. And we looked at those seven churches in Asia Minor and how each of those um, represented a dispensation in time from the early church, the first church to the last church, representing the last 2,000 years of time. And uh, those, are the, those are the things that that thou hast seen, and to think that's the way things are. And it's kind of interesting as he closes out, and I don't want to go back through the churches of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis at this time, uh, at least in our introduction, and I, I don't want to do that, but at some point in time I do want to spend a little bit more time there. But it, it just kind of, um, it's, um, when, when you come to the last church, the church at Laodicea, it is a laity a lay-operated, committee-run church. But there's something else that's very interesting about the church of the last days. And I don't think I'll have to define this very clearly, and it'll begin to click in our mind that we're in the last of the church age. Clarence Larkin, I don't know if you have or if you've seen the book. I've had it. Brother Carlton gave it to me uh, when, I got, uh, when, when I was ordained. Uh, he gave me a copy of a dispensational truth. It's a book about this big, and it's about this thick, and it's written by Clarence Larkin, and he had all these graphs that you see, all these guys that use this stuff on television, and it goes from one side, goes from the beginning all the way to the end. Clarence Larkin is the one who drew uh, all of those. He, he was a, 
an architect. He drew all of these blueprints and he, he put all of these wonderful charts together so we can kind of visualize the church age and the different ages and the rapture of the church. And he puts everything in such a perfect order. Here's what he says about the church at Laodicea. This is found in his book of Dispensational Truths. The most startling thing in the New Testament is the church of Laodicea. The last church, the church of Laodicea. He said, outwardly there is great prosperity, but inwardly it is Christless. Does that ring a bell? And, and he even makes a statement in his book and he says, how in the world can it be that a church can survive without Christ being the center, the inward part of the church? Today it's all about how we look. Uh, today it's all about meeting peer, peer pressure and peer approval. That, you young people in the seventh grade, you never get out of that for the rest of your life. You're going to always have the peer pressure. There's always somebody that's pressing us. I've maintained this throughout the 45 years of my ministry. The Lord gave it to me when I was in Lakeland, this very simple thought. You cannot tailor a church to fit people. You must tailor people to fit a church. You can't be everything everybody wants you to be. You can't have all the things that everybody wants you to have. You must focus, your central focus, and that's why Jesus is standing at the door on the outside of the door. Brother Thigpen mentioned it in the, in the Sunday school lesson this morning that the knob's on the inside and he's ready for us, us to open the door. It's kind of like in the Old Testament when, Christ, when, when God departed from the sanctuary and as he went out, he wrote over the back door, Ichabod. The glory of the Lord is departed. And that is true in so many churches today. Prosperity is not necessarily a sign that we're doing well in, in spiritual things. Not anything wrong with that if it's kept in check. And, um, and so here's what had happened to the church at Laodicea. Worldliness had crept in. And now... The Jews have rejected Jesus. The unsaved have rejected Jesus. And now finally, at the end of this age, the last thing, the last church before the rapture of the church, the church has rejected Jesus Christ. The one that he loved, the one that he died for. Just like the nation of Israel in John chapter number 1, he came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name. But they rejected him. They turned him out. They turned him away. They would not have him. No to him as king. They're still looking for a king, even to this day. And now finally at the end of the church age, 2,000 years have passed by, and if we have indeed endured the Sardis church age and the Philadelphian church age, that, that age of revival and the Sardis trail and thousands and millions of people getting saved and revival on every continent, if all of that has passed and now we've entered into the Laodicean church age probably in the past century, and now we're to the place that... That church is more novel than it is spiritual. That we, we don't have church anymore for the spiritual minded. We have church for the worldly minded. And that's the situation that was on hand 
at the Laodicean church. He said, you're rich. You think that you're rich and you have need of nothing. He said, you're not hot, you're not cold. You're just performing. That's the church. At, it's called the fashionable church at Laodicea. We're also going to look in the third place. John saw the rapture. John saw the rapture. In the fourth place, we'll be looking at John saw the redeemed, and you'll see that in chapter number four and chapter number five, and we'll probably get that far tonight. The, uh, he saw the rapture. He saw the church age. He saw the rapture. He saw the redeemed. I think I have ten of these if it doesn't grow. In the fifth place, John saw the tribulation period. We're going to spend some time looking at that. In the sixth place, John saw the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. What about the reign of Christ? One thousand years on earth. Is it real? Is it, uh, is it just kind of some kind of figmentation, you know, that, you know, that we're, it's, it's just kind of some uh, euphoric thing that we have in the back of our minds? Well, of course not. He literally reigns one thousand years on this earth. And the Bible describes it in great detail. I think that it's interesting to know that. And then also we'll look at the, John saw the thousand-year reign of Christ. Then John saw the battle of Gog and Magog. John saw two wars at the end of the tribulation period and, uh, and, uh, at, the, at, and at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. One at the end of the tribulation period, one great war. And then there's another great war that follows. The one in chapter number 19 at the end of the tribulation period introducing the thousand-year reign of Christ, God instigates war. And Jesus comes on a white horse and he has a sword and you know the story. We're going to look at that in detail. But then after 1,000 years have passed by, and I'm just kind of giving you a general introduction of where we're headed this summer. At the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, and there's been holiness throughout the earth, and Christ is reigning from the throne of his father David from Jerusalem, and he's ruling the world in righteousness. And yet in that thousand-year period, at the end of that, the devil's chained, he's cast into the pit, and, uh, and holiness and righteousness, but at the end of that thousand-year period, the Bible said that the devil's he was let out for just a little while. And guess what he's able to do after that? Here's, here, here's another picture of, of uh, how depraved humanity really is. And the devil's able to go out and get enough people to wage a war against God. The final battle. He initi God initiates the one in uh, chapter number 19 and the one in chapter number 20. The devil initiates it. By the way, the, the, the first one, the battle, it's, it's so detailed and, and, and we have such description of it all in the Old Testament, in the New Testament as well, in the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel and other places. And, and, and he gives every gory detail how that the blood is, is flowing to the bridle of the horses in the, battle, in the valley of uh, uh, Midigo. So much blood. And the, and the vultures come and they're partaking of the flesh of, of animals and kings and so on and so forth. But then it comes to the final battle. The battle of Gog and Magog. The devil initiates it. There's never a sword that's raised. God just sends as he has done in times past. 
as he did to Sodom and Gomorrah, as he did in other times in the scripture, he just rains fireballs down from heaven. And it's all said and done in a moment's time. John saw the battle of Gog and Magog. John saw the great white throne judgment. What happened there? What happened at the great white throne judgment? John saw in the tenth place, I guess, John saw, uh, John saw heaven. I think I missed that somewhere. We're going to look at heaven in the New Testament. Uh, yeah, in the ninth place, John saw uh, heaven. And then finally, we'll look at John saw the throne of God in Revelation 22. And so, thinking about those kind of things, hope you'll be praying and we'll look at them and uh, see what we can learn together uh, about this, this future of the world. Jesus described it in Matthew 24, was it? When they asked him, he said, Lord, what is, what is the sign of thy coming and the, and the end of the world? I think they asked him three particular questions in the age, in the world, uh, in that, and he began to outline to them how things were going to come to pass. And we'll look at those stories in the scripture. Tonight, for just a moment, I want to turn to Revelation chapter, let's go back in chapter number one in verse number 19 for just a moment. He said, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. We see the first part of the, those first two things are uh, completed as you get down to the last verse of chapter number three and then look how chapter number four begins. It's entering the final stage. After this I look. And behold, a door was opened in heaven. Just listen to this. Just listen to this. And a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me. The trumpet was sounding out, which said, come up hither. What the th next thing on God's spiritual calendar is? The rapture of the church. He takes his bride home. He takes his bride home. And, and we see that here uh, in this part of the story. He said, come up hither and I will show you things which must be. When God, when God, God stays with his outline, he's not like us Baptist preachers. We, we kick the pulpit and rabbits run out and we take off chasing them. But he's staying with his outline. He said, you've already seen that which is. You're already seen, you've already seen that uh, which uh, uh, is, and, and you've already seen the Lord. And now he says, I'm going to show you the things that are coming. And they start right here in chapter number 1 and verse number 4, and they go all the way to Revelation 22, 21. Make no mistake about it. I will show you things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. And one sat on the throne. Look back with me, if you would, uh, in, um, in the book of First uh, Thessalonians. Let's see if we can find something that has some of the common verbiage uh, in it, at least the, the ideas behind it, a passage that I use at every Christian funeral. First Thessalonians chapter number 4, you'll probably see it on the screen. I have it before me. Verse number 13. He said, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, 
that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Mama, Daddy, Grandma, Grandpa. It's interesting to me that when, when he describes sleep for the child of, or death for the child of God in the New Testament and the Old Testament as well, it's always likened unto sleep. The Bible said in the book of Acts from the Old Testament, and David served his generation and fell asleep. Now, we know that David died, but God said that he's just asleep. His body's just asleep. Look at the rest of the story. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that's a reputable source. You don't have to go look in any book anywhere. That we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven, that's what John saw, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. You said, I don't believe a word of it. You will one day. It'll be too late to do you any good. Might as well believe it now. It'll help you out. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord, wherefore comfort one another with these words. John saw the rapture. We've heard the old time preachers preach about it and the Modern day preachers preach about it. That one day there's going to be a trumpet sound and there's going to be the, the voice of the archangel and it's going to sound out and it's going to say, come up hither. It doesn't matter whether you're in the grave. It doesn't matter if your remains are in the bottom of the sea. One of these days, that old body that was put the grave... The, old, the black spiritual said, there ain't no grave going to hold my body down. And these graves, cemeteries all around this area, one of these days when the trumpet sounds and the archangel screams out to come here, to come home, it's going to take place. Somebody asked a question, said, why do the people in the grave go before we do? Because they're six foot further down than we are. We meet them in the air. And it's going to be the greatest reunion in the history of the world. We had our family reunion when my dad was still living and he had a dozen brothers and sisters and they had a hundred boys and girls and grandchildren. We used to go every year over to Waycross and I looked so forward to it every year when I was a young man coming up about going to the uh, Ward family reunion. It was actually the Rudd family reunion. But it was Wards and Rudds and and a whole bunch of them, and Dixons, everybody in Waycross is a Dixon, and we're kin to most of them, and we'd go out to Laurel Walker a State Park, and we'd have all of the, they'd come from Florida and all over Georgia, and we'd all get together, and it was such a wonderful time to get together with people that you hadn't seen in a long time. One of these days, uh, the gladdest reunion of all time. By the way, there's going to be a feast at it too. It's going to be everything that you expect it to be and more when Jesus calls his children home. Now, 
when that happens, understand that this is the next event. If we had, if we had God's calendar up here and, and the countdown is on, you'd see that the clock is quickly ticking toward the time that has been preset by God. Nobody knows when Jesus is coming again. Nobody you hear on the radio, nobody that you read behind, nobody that teaches about it, nobody knows the time of the return of Christ. I have a book in my office. I've kept it just for the novelty of it. 101 Reasons Why Jesus Must Come by 1998. I still have the book. You can buy them at a garage sale probably for a quarter. I wouldn't say you mind. I don't know. I just like, it's just so novel to me that God is in charge of all this, and when people think they're smart enough to know who God is, they just get, they just, you're just going to be found out. And so I don't try to make any predictions. I just go by what he said. He said that Jesus said, I don't know, the angels in heaven doesn't know, only my Father knows. And one of these days, and one of these days soon, he's going to look over on his right hand to his son, and he's going to say, son, go get your bride. Go get your bride. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, it's going to be wonderful to see Moses and Isaiah and Elijah. When he takes me by his hand and leads me through the promised land, what a day. And it all starts with a trumpet. John saw the rapture. Now, most people... They just like to combine everything together. They don't believe in rightly dividing the word of truth. There are people who believe in there's just a general judgment. That one day that everybody's going to stand in line and they're going to be called in alphabetical order from A to Z. And if I don't know how, how long it would take if, you, if they use the, uh, uh, some of the oriental alphabets that have 70,000 characters in them, but ours only has 26. So everybody from A to Z is just going to stand in line and uh, God's sitting up there and I'm not... Not trying to be sacrilegious, but some people just have the idea that he's got this book and he's just going to look at it and say, "Well, you did good here and you did good there, and you but you did bad here and you did good and you did bad and you did good." And somebody and somebody's standing over to the side with a calculator, and if your goodness outweighs your badness, then he says, "Come on into heaven." But on the other hand, if it's it, and you'll see that that's not the way the judgment is. There is a judgment of our. And that's going to happen after the rapture. The, the uh, judgment seat of Christ where we'll be judged as Christians for the deeds that are done in this body, whether they be good or whether we be, they be bad. And they'll be suffering uh, of, uh, and uh, there'll be rewards and there'll be loss of rewards. And then after we have, but that has nothing to do with the unsaved. That's just the saved people. You'll see a little later. And so this matter of just a general judgment where we all just stand there in line and, and wait our turn is foreign from the Scripture. The same way, in the same sense, there's people who have, who have the idea 
that the coming of the Lord, when we, when we say that Jesus is coming soon, morning or night or noon, when we talk about it, when we preach about it, when we labor the thought that Jesus is coming, they have the idea that it's just a one event. But the return of the Lord, as is made mention of in the Scripture, and the coming of the Lord is actually divided into two stages. There is, of course, when He comes in the air, that is a revelation of Christ, the rapture of the church. And then when He comes again, as I mentioned a few moments ago in Revelation chapter number 19, when He comes on the white horse, that is the return of Christ, the second coming of the Lord. And so make no mistake about it. It is in two stages. The first one is... In the clouds, the angel said, this same Jesus that you've seen go away will come again in like manner. He ascended up into heaven on a cloud. He's coming back on a cloud, and he's calling his church up to himself. The first stage of his coming, the rapture of the church, is very simply this. There's clouds, and there's a shout. In contrast to that, He's coming in the clouds and there's a shout. But then in Revelation chapter number 19, when he comes again, he comes to the earth and he's carrying a sword. And so you can see, you can see that, that the coming of the Lord is at the beginning as, a, as things are being prepared for the tribulation period. At the end of the church age, Jesus returns in the air. At the end of the tribulation period, seven years, and then a thousand-year reign of Christ, at the, at the beginning of the thousand-year reign of Christ, he comes again. And so once he comes the first time, you'll, you, you'll be able to date the time that he comes the second time, but nobody knows now. Nobody knows. Nobody you know knows when it's going to happen. But be sure of this, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen. He's coming. That's the hope of the believer. We don't change this world. Uh, we don't conform this world. The world is, is conforming the church today. I've already talked about the church at Laodicea. The world has become so churchy and the church has become so worldly. You can't tell the difference. There was a time that the, our church life was, was, was sacred to us and, and, and people wouldn't miss church for every little tiny thing. I mean, people loved to go to church and people desired to go to church, but that hungering and thirsting in America now is gone. It's gone. Now, there's some pockets here and there and pockets here and there where there's people still taking a, a stand and standing for Christ. But it's a sad day. It really is. When, when there's, you know, when, when, when there's nothing that is sacred and there's nothing that's holy, there's, there's nothing that's different about, in many churches today, the music on the inside is the same music on the outside. The atmosphere on the inside of the church is the same atmosphere that you'd find on a Saturday night in town. Now, I'm not making this up. And I'm not trying to make anybody mad. I'm just telling you, we're in a sad day when no longer 
It's the main thing in the church to worship God and, and study His Word and sing the songs of Zion and, and... No, no. If that's all you're going to do down there, then you're going to, you're going to probably watch the crowd dwindle over the, according, to the, uh, according to the Word of God. That I mean, men are going to wax worse and worse. This thing's not getting better. I don't have any sour grapes. I'm not, I, don't, I don't hold account for anybody but me. I, I'm not, I don't know what other churches do. Uh, you know, I see it, and they put it on Facebook, and I mean, it's right before your eyes. But the sacredness of, 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 the, of the pulpit and the sacredness of the choir and, and, and the sacredness of the, of the altar and, and the sacredness of, of, the, of being in the house of God isn't what people are looking for. Now I am. And Greg is. We just can't fall into this Laodicean church age. It, was, uh, it wasn't the Laodicean church. They weren't led by God. They wouldn't be in that mess if they were led by God. I'm not even sure they were led by the preacher. I'm not even sure they'd be led by the deacon board or the trustees. The general consensus this day and hour is it, it just doesn't matter. As long as it matters to him, it ought to matter to us. It should matter to us. John saw at the end of the Laodicean church age, John was called up to heaven. After this I looked, and behold, a door was open in heaven. The first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show you things which must be hereafter. And immediately, immediately, in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, he describes the event like this, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, I don't know how fast that is, but it's pretty fast. Now, quicker than that. I heard one old-time preacher. He said, well, he said, let me describe it this way. He said, if you were to stand 50 yards away from me, and I took a rifle, the most powerful rifle that could ever be, unbelievably powerful, the projection, I mean, powerful, powerful. He said, the moment of the in the twinkling of an eye, he said, if I were to shoot right through your belly, he said, that bullet would go all the way through you, go around the earth seven times, and go back through the same hole before you could fall. That's the moment in the twinkling of an eye. I can't say that it's not. <laughs> Man, that's quick. That's why you've got to be ready. You've got to be ready. At the, at, in such a moment that you think not. When, when they're running around saying, peace, peace. He said in a moment like that. 
Not anything has to change. There, there's not one thing has to happen anywhere in the world. All the prophecies obviously have been fulfilled. Now there's a lot of things that will happen after Jesus comes that those prophecies are in relationship to the tribulation period and all those kind of things. But this, the tribulation period is likened unto a storm that you can see off in the future. Jesus put it like this in one place. He said, uh, when you see these things begin to come to pass. Look up. Your redemption draweth nigh. I don't, think we'll, I don't think we'll ever feel one gust according to what he told the church at Philadelphia. I don't think we'll feel one gust of wind from the tribulation period. We're going to be gone just like it is now. Now, we're going to see it. It's, it's coming to pass. And they say, well, you know, what about the Antichrist and all these kind of things? Don't worry about the Antichrist. Worry about the anti-Christian systems that are already in place. He said they're already here. They were here when John was here. Paul was here. John wrote about it in the, in the little epistle. He said the Antichrist are already here. We don't have to worry about that man of sin. We don't have to spend our... We're interested in it. We want to know. But it hadn't been anybody that I've heard it, heard it named over the last five decades that I've been a Christian. It was Spiro Agnew, and I don't know, they, every, everybody that somebody didn't quite think they were just right, and, you know, they'd, they'd think, well, you know, that's got to be it. You know, that's got to be him. And, and uh, who is um, um, Ben Godden and... And the list just goes on and on and on and on and on. Oh, that's got to be him. That's got to be him. Let's get ready. He'll be here. But you won't see him to chapter number six. And you're up in heaven. Next thing we look at is John saw the redeemed. Stand with us for prayer tonight. A little longer than I expected. Father, we.